Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban says the European Union needs a new strategy on Ukraine. On the ground, Kiev's forces appear to be making some gains in the east. But is the EU likely to change its policy on the conflict? I'm Bernard Smith, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests. In Vienna, we have Roger Hilton, a defence fellow at Globesec, a security and geopolitical think tank. In the Ukrainian city of Lviv, we have Michael Bozakiu, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And in Oxford, Samuel Romani, an associate fellow at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. A warm welcome to you all. Uh, Roger, I'll start with you. Will Europe be able to maintain unity on Ukraine as uh, autumn and winter approaches? Well, good evening, Bernard, and thank you so much for having me. Before getting started, uh, as we heard on the introduction, Viktor Orban made a very spirited speech that Ukraine will not be able to win this war. So before we go any further, I just want to make the statement that I vehemently disagree with this position of the Hungarian prime minister. I think a lot of the cards are now are aligning for Ukraine long term to move forward and winning. And obviously goes without saying his comments about Europe needs to sit on the side is also a position I don't agree with. Uh, the European Union itself is an institution based on values and morals. And right now it's not only a moral imperative for the EU to act, but it's also in their strategic interest. When it cuts, excuse me, when it comes to the European Union holding up, yes, of course, you you know, you've had these five governments that fall already, but it could be argued that they could have fallen earlier and it took six months for this to actually happen. So while the current implementation of the European Union strategy against Russia isn't perfect, it has been impactful. And I think moving forward that it just needs to be adjusted to move forward with the battlefield policy moving on. Michael, do they see in Ukraine what Orban is saying as a, a perhaps a commonly held view? Do they worry it will become a commonly held view in Europe or do they think Orban is speaking on his own? I think a big fear here in Ukraine is that, yes, Europe will become divided um, and that the interest in the war will wane and that as pressure increases on democratically elected governments in Europe and elsewhere, that, um, you know, they, they will succumb to, uh, you know, the economic costs that are happening. But look, it's very, very important uh, for Western governments to uh, keep together when it comes to policy towards Ukraine. And then I have to say as well that as a Canadian, uh, it's very important that countries like my own stick to the sanctions they committed to. I was very, very disappointed and disillusioned when Prime Minister Trudeau recently watered down his own sanctions uh -huh. in order to return those generators for Nord Stream 1 back to, to Russia. So, uh, look, uh, Mr. Orban is one of the most dangerous politicians on the planet. He gave many speeches recently, some of them quite racist. Uh, he's an ally of Russia. So, uh, you know, he's, he's playing the Russian playbook. And uh, I don't think we can believe much in what he actually says. Samuel, do you think uh, Europe will be able to maintain unity over Ukraine as autumn and winter approaches, a cold weather comes? So I think that we need to look at the question of European unity in several different angles. I think that certainly European countries are going to continue to supply arms to Ukraine. There are some disagreements, obviously, with Hungary not wanting to be a party in the war and also in Bulgaria. But the vast majority of European countries are willing to send artillery, uh, air defense systems and other equipment. So in terms of arming Ukraine, I think there'll certainly be unity. But where it will get complicated is on the next uh, eighth package of sanctions against Russia. Will they move towards a gas embargo? There was a remarkable coalescence of European countries on the SWIFT sanctions, even on the oil embargo after a testy period, on individual sanctions, sanctions on Russian entities. But I think that that unity might start to fray when it comes to natural gas, 
even big players like Germany might balk. We're seeing Hungary already expand its purchases of, of natural gas and keep Russian nuclear energy. So I think that that will be the area. And also, there will be divisions not just between member states, but the biggest divisions will happen within countries. So between far-right and far-left mm -hmm. populist parties and the governments that are in power. So we need to look at internal political cleavages as being the biggest source of discord for Europe. But I think the military support will likely stay. Roger, despite his uh, more outrageous statements, Viktor Orban does have challenges that are not unique in European countries. Rising energy costs, heavy reliance on uh, Russian energy. And sanctions haven't particularly worked, have they? Russia's tripled the amount of money it's earning from high energy costs. So does there need to be another look at how we treat Russia in this conflict? If I could just respond very quickly to Sam, who brings up some good points. I mean, sure. I think for all of our viewers out there, it's very important to recognize that since the beginning of July, the Czech Republic has taken over the presidency of the European Union. And the Czech Republic, for all of our viewers who might not know it, are part of a group that Visegrad for, which includes Hungary, Slovakia, Poland, and the Czech Republic. And it's been very clear with their new government moving on from Andre Babish that they are going to deprioritize the platform of the V4 uh, sort of as a mechanism to coordinate okay. policy, which was common before. And then also within that, Hungary has the presidency of the Z4, and their traditional ally, Poland, is obviously not in lockstep with them. Moving forward onto the next point, as I said in my earlier statements, I think the EU needs to adjust what's going on now. It goes without saying that when it comes to energy, uh, different areas are going to be are going to be more vulnerable to others. Uh, obviously, here uh, just across the border in Slovakia, they have major issues going on. But at the same time, there are other sources of energy coming in from the south. Uh, you know, and you've had a bit of an issue right now with the EU, with Spain, Portugal, and Poland also saying that the energy that they have, they might not redistribute it equally uh, as was proposed earlier in this week with Germany. So I'm not here saying that there's a quick fix to this, but I do think that there is a solution to be had both on the political level and trying to figure out how to, to maximize the gas that Europe does have access to without putting too much money in the coffer of the Russians at the same time. Michael, you touched on it before, but I mean, there are what, over 5 million Ukrainian refugees across Europe now. Is there a concern that the welcome for them is waning? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, I just finished a tour of Europe and... Um, even in Poland, which has been one of the strongest supporters of Ukraine, uh, this coming September, 700,000 Ukrainian school children will be admitted into Polish schools. So that's a huge burden on them. We're seeing in some other countries as well that support, for example, free railway tickets, things like that, are being withdrawn. And also people are having, a lot of refugees are having problems um, funding, for example, their accommodation. So it isn't an easy slog. But Going back to the original point, if I may, look, uh, I think Europe, European governments have to get their citizens ready that they have to accept short-term pain for long-term gain. The only thing Mr. Putin understands is force. And if European countries begin to buckle when it comes to supplying arms to Ukraine or the strength of sanctions, he's going to go further and further into Europe. So there can be no divides when it comes to standing up to Mr. Putin. OK, but um, Samuel, Europeans particularly Northern Europeans, aren't used to having to put up with short-term pain. The EU Commission on those gas, uh, uh, gas shortages, the Commission wants huge powers to mandate gas rationing, and many European countries already resisting it. Uh, do you think the EU will manage to get that policy through? Well, I think that, that could be a bit of a complicated uh, measure. We're already seeing some nation-states within the European Union normalising the notion of gas rationing. I think there was a statement coming from the German Economy Ministry so Robert Habeck, even several months ago, talking about that. The Netherlands was also warning about that at the same time. 
So the idea that this might be inevitable has been normalized by existing governments. But certainly it's going to be very unpopular and it risks emboldening uh, the far right elements within those countries, like the Geert Wilders type politicians in the in Netherlands or inside uh, Germany, the AFD, or in Italy now with Mario Draghi being uh, removed, the Five Star Movement and the Liga Nord. So there, I think that those concerns about emboldening populists might prevent many European countries from actually going through to through on this. And there'll be others like Hungary and Slovakia, which I think that could drag their feet entirely and uh, veto such a measure. And, uh, Roger, what do you think about that? Is, is that going to work, this attempt by the Commission to give itself these enormous powers to, to mandate gas rationing? If there's one thing that I think we've all learned here is not to under-evaluate the grit, the creativity, and also the policy grit uh, of Ursula von der Leyen as president of the European Commission. So, I mean, look, it's, I'm, again, as I said earlier, this is going to be a tough decision, but I think on the political level, a lot of people thought that the massive bailout that happened earlier in the 2000s that wasn't going, that wasn't going to happen and that there was, you know, a talk about the Greek economy and then crashing out of the euro. So I do wholeheartedly believe that given what's at stake, both in the short term, medium and long term, that a deal will be had. Will there be some tough pills to swallow, especially maybe among Germans? Absolutely. Especially now, sort of with uh, Germany's 30% buy-in of Uniper, there's no doubt that the energy sector is hurting. But as I said, I mean, when there's a will, there's a way. And I think moving forward, especially with some of the Slovak, uh, Slovak Vice President Sefcovic as the president, uh, Vice President Commission, I think there will be a lot of momentum to try to get this over the finish line with some winners and losers. But, but Roger, when you say where there's a will, there's a way, I mean, there is resistance to this, particularly, you know, a lot of, there's a view that this is to save Germany. And uh, the Greeks might particularly be a bit upset about that, considering their... Uh, request for fiscal leniency um, years ago during the financial crisis. Is that view, does that view gain currency, have currency? I think for the moment it makes great clickbait, it's great headlines, but at the end of the day, I mean, there are other uh, mechanisms within the European Union to try to get the ball moving forward. As I said, I mean, is it retribution? Is it a bit, as we say in German, Schattenfreund? It, it could be, but I still think long term, without being, you know, we're still in early days of this conversation. Winter season is still a little bit, of, the heating season is still a bit of way. Uh, and I think it's not to be underestimated the Czech presidency, the role they'll play in it. I mean, very famously, I think it is their energy minister who said, if we have to, we will burn everything to stay alive and to stay warm. So again, we're very early days on this. And I think moving forward, there'll be compromise, give and take, and we'll see what happens. Michael, are the further sanctions tools uh, that the Europeans and the Americans, the North Atlantic countries can use against uh, Russia that haven't been employed that that they should be considering? Yeah, I think so. There are more uh, banks than can be sanctioned. Um, I think um, the strategy, though, of using sanctions to cause perhaps harm or pain to the Russian people, hoping that they'll rise up against Mr. Putin, is not the right uh, philosophy to follow. I think um, we have to get to a point, and I know the Americans have been working on this, is to get other kind of slow starters on board. I'm talking about some of the Gulf countries, uh, um, UAE, countries like that, because, you know, um, as long as the oligarchs or the people in Mr. Putin's circle can hide their wealth or visit countries like the UAE or um, countries in Asia, for example, uh, they will not feel the brunt of the sanctions. We have to get to a point, and I said this before now, Jazeera, I believe, is that if these uh, oligarchs, these people in Mr. Putin's circle want to go vacation anywhere, they only have two options. One, it would be perhaps North Korea, 
and the others would be the illegally made um, island, islands in the South China Sea by China. So, but, you know, these sanctions take a lot of work. They're not going to be uh, employed overnight. I think there's going to be a lot of um, bilateral negotiations, for example, even with Turkey, which, by the way, is trying to play a mediator between mm -hmm. Ukraine and uh, Russia. Uh, they, too, are, for example, very reliant on Russian tourism. So it's very difficult for them to go all the way and put in the really, really tough sanctions, I believe. Samuel, just on, on what uh, Michael was saying there, has Russia had any diplomatic use, success, you think, in limiting Europe's uh, attempts to isolate Russia? Sergei Lavrov's doing a tour of Africa at the moment after reaching that grain deal. The Middle East isn't totally behind uh, uh, Europe, as, uh, as uh, Michael just said there. Well, I think that Russia may not have necessarily been able to leverage its relationships with populist parties or inter-European divisions to the extent that they uh, would have thought. And that is not surprising because they've always overestimated their ability to create fractures within uh, European societies. Like I distinctly remember speaking to uh, Russian academics in 2015, a year after the annexation of Crimea, and they were telling me that they were shocked that Germany and many European countries ultimately sanctioned Russia because they figured that their internal connections would be able to have prevented that outcome. But outside of uh, Europe, the Russians are doing quite a good job at creating and moving towards a post-Western foreign policy. Certainly, China is backing so many of their narratives, whether it be on biological weapons, whether it be on an aversion to sanctions, a so-called peaceful solution that effectively means Ukraine ceding its sovereignty to Russia. India is looking for new investments in the Russian economy. Most of the Middle Eastern countries, with the exception of Turkey and sometimes intermittently Israel, have really been, if not on Russia's side, certainly accommodating of Russia's positions. And Russia is strengthening its ties now in Africa with key countries like Congo, Uganda, Egypt, Ethiopia, just on Lavrov's tour, and in Latin America, too. It was interesting to see Mercosur, the summit, not give Zelensky a speaking slot. So Russia's post-Western foreign policy is embrace of a multipolar order, and its outreaches to the global south have been much more successful than some people may have thought. And their narratives, too, okay. saying the sanctions, for example, and not Russia's blockading okay. of grain are causing food insecurity. Yeah. Those narratives are going a long way in the global yeah. south, and the West is encountering them effectively. All right. Roger, is Europe now having to face up to the fact that it's operating a war economy? Uh, Bernard, if I could just again, sorry, uh, if I could just respond to Please. Sam, I'm really not, if I, I'm just really not convinced uh, so wholeheartedly uh, of the success of Russians, you know, soft power outreach afterwards. I think it speaks massive volumes in two, in, you know, two recent sightings of Putin's where first year he was in Iran. And um, just the sheer fact that he was the one who's having to wait for President Erdogan, nice. you know, where he's the one who's always having to wait was quite dramatic. And then the second is, is this really the main ally that, you know, Russia is so proud to trumpet out that they had a meeting with the Ayatollah when Kiev can basically call up anybody in Washington or other G7 countries and have meetings with them? Uh, also, when it comes to China, again, I really think this is a veneer where even, you know, the economy is hurting quite a bit. And I think that a lot of the Chinese companies, whether it's import substitution or financing, they haven't stepped in as much as I think everybody thought they were going to for fear of being dragged in the dragnet of sanctions, uh, especially the, given the uh, instability and the fragile state of the Chinese economy. I mean, there's protests okay. going on right now in China. So, oh. if you could just repeat the question, sorry, Bernard. Sure. No, well, well, I'll, 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 I'll carry on with this theme then, OK. But e even if you're not convinced by Russia's diplomatic uh, successes outside of Europe, Putin's not going anywhere, is he? Sanctions haven't destabilised him, haven't, aren't threatening his removal from power. He might be playing a long game. He's, he could be in there for a, for a long time. He's not going to pull out of Ukraine.
if I could just respond before my, my colleagues, I mean, even if he is playing a long game, and again, I, I don't agree with the I don't agree with the position that the economy is is okay. They're cherry picking stats. And when you see whether it's in Kaliningrad, sure. there's a sugar run uh, or other issues where now ladders are coming out without uh, without technologies and without the proper technologies uh, for airbags. I think it is very disconcerting, and I think it's the silence is concerning that what are we supposed to do with this? Import substitution, there's going to be a massive hole in the deficit uh, in the budget moving forward, as confirmed by the finance minister, and they're losing a huge amount of the Federal Reserves, every, uh, their reserves when it's sanctioned. So again, okay. on the economic level, I think things are much worse. But when it comes to the EU, yes, uh, the system is set up that while it's not great and Presumably, the evidence suggests that we're going to be going into a recession and the cost of living is going high, which feeds into what Sam said about a lot of the populist parties. This is the reality okay. we have to live in, and Europe has gone through other big crises before. All right. Michael, uh, is Putin playing the long game? Is he going to make do with the Donbass, or is, he going to, is, is that enough of a face-saving option? Or uh, he's not threatened domestically, he controls the state media, so no, there's no particular opposition there to public opposition to what he's doing. What's the Ukrainian view of how it's going to play out? Yeah, definitely he's playing the long game. I mean, let's not forget that this war actually started in 2014, mm. not on February 24th of this year. And then, you know, in that time, uh, Russia has been inoculating itself against uh, sanctions, for example, with a tighter alliance with China, which is something they did even during the pandemic when no one else was traveling around. So they, um, they um, you know, the beauty of being a dictator, of course, is you don't have to uh, face uh, the electric on a level, uh, electric, excuse me, on a level playing field. Um, you can manipulate elections, you can get reelected and like President Xi, try and stay uh, in power for, for life. But I do think uh, the Chinese, uh, I mean, Kind of ally of Russia at the moment are much much more pro, um, sorry they're much more pragmatic, and that when they see that it's not to their benefit that Russia is warring with Ukraine and then also causing trouble elsewhere in the neighborhood, for example in the Central Asian states, that they will uh, pull further away. And then I think this is the wild card, Bernard. I think this is where Russia will be forced to reevaluate um, its its strategy in Ukraine. But yes, the Ukrainians. Um, need desperately much, much more weaponry. And the main thing they need right now, because no inch of Ukraine can be considered safe, including where I'm sitting right now, is they need the ability to close their skies to those long-range uh, Russian missiles that can be shot from inside Russia right. from a 1,000 miles away. Yeah. All right. So then, uh, uh, Samuel, with the weapons that NATO is supplying to Russia, has Russia got the resources to keep fighting at its, at its current levels, given the new weaponry coming in? Well, that's always been an open question. How long can Russia sustain itself? I mean, there were British intelligence reports that were predicting even back in March and April that Russia would burn through its precision weaponry stocks, and that's why it was relying on KH-22s and a lot more uh, poor-quality, less precise Soviet-era weaponry. But I think that that's less because they're running out of stocks, but more because they're just trying to minimize costs and they don't really care about the losses of civilian lives. I think that Russia can definitely continue fighting this war for at least one to two years. That's at least the estimate that's coming from Ukraine. Even, and also, Russia will be in, in fortifying its defensive positions, even in places in southern Ukraine. So it will uh, potentially minimize some of its casualties. So even if it's losing hundreds of people a day right now, which is what some reports are showing, and is burning through a lot of weapon stocks, we shouldn't underestimate Russia's long-term ability to continue prosecuting this war. Though uh, HIMARS and other systems that NATO was giving to Ukraine are a big advantage, you're still seeing anecdotal reports in the Kurzon counteroffensive that Russia can still outgun Ukrainian military by 8 to 1 in terms of artillery. 
Oh, so right. that's a big advantage that Russia has. Uh, and Roger, last, so do you think, uh, has Russia got the resources to keep fighting at its current levels? And, and if so, is the, uh, the approach Europe is taking, as you were saying at the beginning of the programme, Europe should maintain the path that it's on? I just seem to be in a position right now where I, I don't seem to be agreeing a lot with everybody. I mean, just like Sam referenced, I mean, you had Sir Richard Moore speaking at the Aspen Security Conference. You said that Russia was running out of steam. Before we move on to sort of the European strategy, at the same time, while Sam makes some good points about them having these pillbox brought in by lorries, and, you know, don't get me wrong, this is going to be quite a difficult take uh, on the Hersan offensive. You know, just yesterday, you had the American ambassador to Slovakia, uh, Ambassador Bricks, who was formerly the ambassador to Slovakia, who said that the United States support uh, for Ukraine will go on as long as it's needed. So if you have the United States saying that, I think that sets the tone for the rest of the countries who will continue the ammunition. And one point that is not reported up enough is while they still have the artillery superiority in terms of the ratio for the Russians, there are other long range weapon systems that the United States could be providing that are even better than HIMARS uh -huh. that would actually even change the battlefield even more drastically. So it's not as if this is the end all be all for the equipment that can be shipped in. Not to mention the massive security training program that's going on in the UK. Just today, you had Ben Wallace in Slovakia looking into yes. other issues. When it comes to the EU, I think finally my position is they're going to have to amend the strategy a little bit, a little bit of give and take. And I think we saw an example of that with the grain deal. Well, part of the incentive for Russia to get through the grain deal okay. was so that they could get their fertilizer to market. So as I said, moving forward, the EU will have to adapt. All right, gentlemen, for the moment, we're out of time. But thanks to our guests, to Roger Hilton, to Michael Bosacue and to Samuel Romani. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohamed Alaishi, Osama Aloni, Fungi Noyan and Jimmy Getahun. Studio sound was by Alvaro Galan. The programme was edited by Leroy Messina, Lynn Noyan and Joe DeFreyas. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday.